The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I'm John Austin Schaffner, and the scripture reading today is from Exodus 5, 1 through 23. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but in the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord took on you and judge, because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in the hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, John Austin twice today has read the longest scripture in the history of Christ Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning. Uh, deserves applause for that, for sure. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, and uh, uh, I know people are continuing to trickle back slowly but surely. Uh, we actually had a pretty packed early service, which was kind of 
surprising and wonderful. Uh, and uh, we know also there are plenty of people still joining us online and stay safe, uh, do what you need to do, but uh, just suffice it to say we cannot wait to uh, see you again, uh, especially those of you we haven't seen in, in quite some time. But uh, uh, we have been uh, both in person and remotely talking about Moses. This is the fourth uh, message in a 10-part series on the life of Moses, and then we'll proceed to another 10-part series on uh, the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments. But uh, up to this point, to date, the people of Israel have grown accustomed to disappointment as their norm. Uh, at this point in their history, uh, they have been uh, for 400 or more years subject to slave labor and dehumanization. That was their day-to-day -day experience for them and their children and their children's children and their children's children after that. They also, over the course of those 400 or so years, have experienced little signs of God's care, like, like little crumbs of goodness along a very difficult journey uh, that they were living. They had been preserved. They, they originally came to Egypt as immigrants who were hungry in the middle of a famine. They needed care. They needed provision. They were a small, uh, helpless family of people, and they were taken in by Egypt. And over the course of those 400 years, they've actually grown into a sizable uh, population within Egypt, the Jews uh, or the Israelites have. Once they were vulnerable and few, now they are vulnerable and many. Uh, they've also experienced signs of God's love along the way. God actually communicated directly to Moses in chapter 2 when he said to Moses, the people of Israel groan, out, or groan and cry out for help. I have heard their groaning. I have remembered my covenant. I see them and I know them. God has also sent his word, just like he's sent his word to us, and, and to authenticate that it's really him, God has sent miracles along with those words, including the burning bush, which we looked at recently, among uh, a few others, to show to Israel that even though things are very hard right now, you are not alone. And the last thing that God has given them, the last delicious crumb that God's given them along the way is a promise that you've got hope, that you've got a future in front of you, and I'm in it, and Pharaoh is not. Now, because the Israelites are hurting, they're susceptible, like we are when we hurt, to becoming cynical, to uh, grumbling, which actually becomes part of their na native language as uh, the story of Israel goes on which we'll see in later weeks. But there are also, uh, you know, because, be, there's also the, the, the reality that because of all the signs that God is dropping bit by bit into their hard circumstances, there is, even in those circumstances, the possibility of hope, the possibility of joy, the possibility of peace, and even the possibility of flourishing. You know, Ann Voskamp, in her wonderful book, A Thousand gifts or 1,000 gifts writes this and, and she writes this with the backdrop of, of, of unspeakable suffering in her own life, the backdrop of having to have watched her own sister perish in a farming accident and she writes this, 
With that as the backdrop, I want to see beauty in the ugly, in the sink, in the suffering, in the daily, in all the days before I die. The secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt God is. The secret to joy is seeking God where we doubt God is. Now, Israel, 400 years, you guys, all kinds of reasons to doubt that God was there or that God was with them. And so they're called to something, though, in the midst of that. They're called to believe more in what they don't see than they do in what they do see. They're called to believe more in what's been promised to them than in their actual experience right now. And that leads to a handful of applications along the way, which will be the main points today. First, the grief that we must be careful not to bring on ourselves by putting our trust in the wrong place. And then secondly, the grace that we must lay hold of and not forfeit by putting our trust in the right place. And then lastly, signs that God is with us. And so, so let's start with the first one. The grief that we bring on ourselves. So uh, you heard the text read, God has called the people of Israel to leave Egypt and to go out into the desert where they can do the thing that they were made for. To be in front of the face of God and worship God. That's what they were called to do. That's who they were called to be. But what we see is that even though Moses and Aaron are ready, at great cost to themselves to pursue that vision that God had given them, the people of Israel are happy instead to settle for a politician. And he's a bad politician who is a bad man. First verse, it says, the Lord sends Moses and Aaron as his mouthpieces to the Egyptian Pharaoh. And they say this in the name of God to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. They're not your people, they're my people. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Then Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? I don't even know who you're talking about. Who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And then he says to the taskmasters who are, who are kind of the managers of the different slave groups, he says, impose heavier work on the Israelites. Same number of bricks, which was already a very difficult number to, to achieve. Same quota. You people who are in sales, you know, you crush it one year and then your company says you have to double what your, you know, record year just was in order to stay in good favor with the company. So, you know, multiply that by 50. Same quota of bricks, but I'm not giving you any materials anymore. You've got to go find, out, find your own materials, produce the same number of bricks, and do it in the same amount of time. It's like telling somebody they have to win the 100-yard dash in the Olympics, but with two feet of water under their feet. It's impossible. And so when they don't meet their quota, Pharaoh 
says, you know, to give a beating to the people who are, who are the foremen. And the foremen turn to, or I'm sorry, he, the, the Pharaoh turns to the foreman and says, why have you not met the quota of bricks? And, and the foremen then beg Pharaoh. They don't beg God. There's no prayer involved here. They beg Pharaoh. Why treat your servants like this? So they're, they're assuming the identity not of God's servants, but as Pharaoh's servants. You know, Moses says, let God's people go. And, and the, God's people say, we're your servants, Pharaoh. Our hope is in you. What you've asked is impossible. It can't be done. So can you please just make our slavery a little bit easier? We'll be happy with that. We'll settle for that. And then Pharaoh gaslights them. You familiar with that term? What is gaslighting? Gaslighting is psychological manipulation of abused parties by the abusing party in this case. It's defined this way. Gaslighting is sowing seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment about reality and about themselves. Now, of course, everyone overreacts. Everyone who's ever been a leader, you, you, you probably got a dozen memories that you can call immediately, call forth immediately, about where you overreacted, where you responded harshly to a situation out of your stress. Here's how you can tell a bad leader from a, a simply flawed leader. You're going to hear over time the flawed leader saying, that was my fault. I'm really sorry about that. That was unreasonable. I was a jerk. A bad leader, you will never hear those kinds of words coming from a bad and especially a tyrannical kind of leader. A bad leader never, ever, ever, ever admits being at fault. The problem is always other people. The problem is always them. And so Pharaoh says to the Israelites, classic gaslighter that he is, it's not me, it's you. Then he accuses them of things for which he has zero evidence. You're idle, you're lazy, you're lying. These things aren't true. But according to Pharaoh, might is right. You know, Eugene Peterson calls this the anxiety system of Pharaoh. And it's not just a system that existed in, in Egypt. It exists everywhere where there are bad leaders. It's a salvation by works system. It's a salvation by measuring up system. The only problem is you, you will never be able to measure up to the quota that's been put in front of you. Israel also commits a fatal error. They dig their own grave, and this is the way they do it. They try to reason with a narcissist. They try to get the gaslighting bully on their side with their plea. They appeal to Pharaoh, not to God, for relief. Even though their prophet Moses is over saying here, God has some relief for you, you guys. God has something better. He has a freedom for you. And it's like, Spare me. Instead, they become political lobbyists. They plead with their abuser to deliver, to be the one to deliver them from abuse. 
It's what you call Stockholm Syndrome. That's when gaslighting has gotten to you. Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological response to the psychological manipulating of a gaslighter. Stockholm Syndrome, it's classic. It's when hostages or abuse victims bond emotionally with their abuser. And they reject all suggestions that they confront or withdraw from the one who is abusing them because they've come to believe that somehow, some way, their abuser is going to be their salvation. We see this in uh, Shawshank Redemption. If you've ever seen that movie, the, the character played by Morgan Freeman uh, is named Red. He's like this veteran prisoner at Shawshank. And there's this, this internal monologue that he, that he gives where, where he's talking about recidivism, where, where so many prisoners, they get so accustomed to the prison walls that when they're set free, when their sentence is over, they, they try to commit a crime as quickly as they can so they'll get thrown back into what they have come to believe are the safe confines of the prison walls. It's gotten to the point where freedom actually stinks to them relative to what bondage and slavery and imprisonment smells like. What Red says is this, these walls are funny. First you hate the walls, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so that you depend on them. You become institutionalized. Here's what's happened with the people of Israel. Hasn't happened with Moses and Aaron, but it has happened with the rest of the the people of Israel. They have begun to identify more with the state of Pharaoh than the kingdom of God. They're looking for salvation in all the wrong places. They don't ask Pharaoh, why do you treat God's servants like this? They say, why do you treat your servants like this? We're your servants. Stockholm Syndrome. So that's the grief that we bring on ourselves. And the grace that we must not forfeit is the alternative that's offered by God through Moses and Aaron. The, but the people say to Moses and Aaron, because of the treatment they're receiving from Pharaoh, this is your fault. So you can gaslight up the org chart in the same way that you can gaslight down it. Right? And so you've got the led, the people who are being led by Moses and Aaron saying to their leaders, The Lord, this is the only time they talk about God in this whole episode. The Lord, look on you. Problem with the world is other people. The Lord, look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of God. No, you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Well, actually, it seems to me that that would be a, a sort of a badge of honor. If the scent of you stinks in the eyes of a bad man. Because bad people don't like the scent of goodness. But you would rather stink so that you smell better to Pharaoh than, than smell like a beautiful aroma so that you smell good to the one who created you. What was the sin that Moses and Aaron committed? Here was the sin that got the people so angry at Moses and Aaron that they called the curse of God down on Moses and Aaron. The sin that Moses and Aaron committed was that they did not sin. They were obeying God. They were listening to and following the voice of God. And that was the sin 
that the people of Israel cursed them for. You see how backwards things can get when we look to politicians to be our Jesus. It doesn't work. I mean, Pharaoh, he's, it's out of his own mouth. I do not know the Lord. And here you have God's people putting their hope in somebody who says, I do not know the Lord, instead of putting their hope in the Lord. It's crazy. It's what you call nominalism. It's what you call cultural Christianity. These are people who are invoking the name of God for expedience sake, but not for worship's sake, not for love's sake. What they really want more than anything else is not the face of God. What they really want more than anything else is a more comfortable experience of slavery. That's what they want. Let's be honest, that's what we want a lot of the time too. All of our idolatrous pursuits of Sex, money, power, fill in the blank. But for the Israelites, at least in this season, there is no category for how the Bible defines discipleship. Deny yourself. Take up a cross of suffering. Follow Christ into the wilderness and you will be free. You know, Wilbur Reese, in a very haunting way, makes Christian nominalism or ancient Israelite nominalism vivid in the way that he describes the heart of the nominalist. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. Not enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beets with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. They are missing what could be theirs. It's like C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily satisfied. We're like the kid who's making mud pies in the mud and somebody says hey let's go to the beach and the kid says why would I go to the beach when I have a mud pile and C.S. Lewis says we're just like that we're just like that he goes on to say you know aim at heaven you'll get earth thrown in but aim at earth and you'll get neither you know my wife shared with me a uh, an anecdote about Billy Joel you guys know who Billy Joel is great musician of our time and uh, in this story that she shared with me uh, it said that Billy Joel no longer sells front row seats at his concerts instead he leaves the front row open just like the front row at Christ Pres is always open <laughs> except today you guys you get it <laughs> it's always open for Billy Joel until it's not. So there are two reasons why Billy Joel opens the front row at his concerts. One is that he got tired of spending his whole career looking down 
right beneath him at people who showed up late and who acted bored. They pay $3,000 for their ticket because they can, but they only want $3 worth of Billy Joel. And so he says, you know what? I'm taking that off the table. But I'm going to still fill those seats. And you know who he fills the seats with? People in the back row way up there. He says, y'all come down. Because these are the people, they're grateful to have any seat in the arena. Doesn't matter where they sit. It's almost as if they're saying, you're better better to sit at the dung gate. Better to, to be a guard at the gates of Billy Joel than to dwell on the front row where people pay three grand. They drop three grand for a ticket but only get three dollars worth of Billy Joel because they're on their phones the whole freaking time. See what I mean? There is such a thing as getting too used to all of your life being an all-access pass. When your whole life is an all-access pass, you get bored even with God. Oh, but the Israelites, they didn't have access to anything. Well, they had access to God. They had access to the front row. Fire in a cloud, you guys. They had access, they just pieced out on it. And Pharaoh, he had all the access and the power in the world. What's his verdict? I'm the king. I'm the king. I don't know the Lord. I don't answer to anyone. Pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Signs that God is with us. It's the last thought. Even Moses had his doubts, you guys. Moses wasn't perfect. Moses is the most virtuous, sinful human being in this text, but he's also sinful. Verse 22, he prays this imperfect prayer to the Lord. It's accusatory. He starts gaslighting God a little bit. It's not us, it's you. It's not me, it's you. Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And yet, even in that prayer, there are two signs that God is there. Sign number one, the suffering itself, is an indication that God is in your midst. Remember, Jesus dwells at the low places. The place of healing is at the hem of Jesus' garment, at the feet of the crucified one, who did not raise from the dead until he was dead first. Suffering always precedes glory in the economy of God. Even, Jesus even learned obedience through the things that he suffered, the book of Hebrews tells us. But when the going gets tough, like Moses, we are so tempted to commit what they call a suicide against God. We assume the worst about God's power or we assume the worst about God's goodness when it appears to us that things aren't going our way. The thinking goes like this, if it hurts, or if I don't understand it, or if I can't see the good in it, then there can't be any good in it. There's this famous anecdote about uh, Teresa of Avila. She's going through a very painful, dark season in her life, and she's praying to God, and she's asked the psalm question, Psalm 13, why, Lord, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And she says she hears the voice of the Lord 
quietly in her spirit say these words. This is how I walk with my friends. I walk with my friends through suffering. Not around it, but through it. And she says, well, Lord, no wonder you have so few friends. We've all felt that way. I've felt that way. But then God drops a little crumb called Romans 8.28 where it says that we know that God works all things together for good. This word together is very key. It doesn't say he works all things for good. It says he works all things together. When you put everything together, what comes out in the end under God is going to be good. It's like when you make a cookie. Some of the ingredients, if you take them by itself, if you swallow the raw eggs by themselves, you can get nauseated. If you start, you know, rolling just the salt by itself around your tongue and swallow, it's going to be bitter. It's going to be disgusting. But if the salt and the raw eggs are working together with the milk and with the, with the flour and with the sugar and, and the other goodness in there, in the end... You're going to get something even better than flour and sugar and milk. You're going to get a delicious pastry of some sort because all of these ingredients have worked together when the heat is turned up on them for good. Suffering is a lot like that. Every single one of us, we can't escape it. We live in a fallen world. Even if you do have VIP access to everything all the time, there's going to come a time where you and I both face our own mortality. Or where we have to bury somebody that we love dearly that we can't now imagine living without. It's going to come eventually for all of us. You know, Anne Lamott says, you know, 100 years from now, all new people. So I'd like to take us back to Anne Voskamp again as we prepare to go to the table. Remember where she says, I want to see the beauty even in the ugly. Where is the beauty here? The beauty that Moses cannot see is actually in the response of Moses himself toward the plight of the people of God. He's a mixed bag. His prayer, in some respects, is an ugly prayer, accusing God of things. But it's coming also from a beautiful place that God has put in him. Like a true pastor, Moses feels fiercely protective of God's people, especially when they're hurting. And he doesn't say to God, deliver Pharaoh's people. He says, deliver your people. And I know they think they're Pharaoh's and not yours, but deliver your people, God. Don't forget you're in covenant with them. In this way, Moses is foreshadowing Jesus Christ and the gospel. The law is kind of like the quota of bricks. It's there, but it's demanding, the law is, what is impossible. And it's merciless when you fall short of that perfection that the law demands. The law is like Pharaoh's quota. Our own righteousness is like the straw. We will never be able to accumulate enough of it in order to produce the bricks that the law of God requires. Our accuser, though, 
is not the king. Our accuser is not God. Our accuser is not Jesus. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, rescue us from the, accus- the accusations of the devil. Jesus then becomes our praying intercessor as Moses was for Israel when they were at their worst. We treat Jesus with contempt and then Jesus is sent out into the desert all alone and while he's dying on the cross, he intercedes for us like he still does. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Our source of relief, men and women, Brothers and sisters, friends of God, our source of relief is not in a politician who does not know God. I will add to that, our source of relief cannot come from a politician who does know God. Our relief, our help comes only from God, who made heaven and earth. He sends us into the desert where we can hear his voice more clearly. And his voice does not say to us, get back to your burdens. His voice says, lay your burdens down. Your guilt, your shame, your sorrows your fears, your boredom about God, lay it down. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy. My burden is not a heavy burden. My burden is light. And then Jesus leaves the front row open, you guys. For hungry, thirsty sinners and sufferers who are thankful just to have a seat in the arena. It doesn't even matter where. They get there early. They stay late. Not because they've been told to, not because they feel they must or because they have to, but because they want $3,000 worth of God, not three freaking dollars. They They want all that they can get of him. And they can't get enough of him. And if access to the front row is given to them, oh, they sing louder than ever. They make fools of themselves sometimes. They're so filled with wonder. But where is that front row? It's where you would least expect. It's out there in the back row. Psalm 23, I prepare a table for my people in the wilderness. In the wilderness. That's where my cup overflows for my people. In the wilderness. Here we are. The table that the Lord has prepared for whatever wilderness you and I are in. Front row is wide open to hungry, thirsty sinners and sufferers who are invited to come by the one whose burden is light. So, we have not come forward to the tables in well over a year, and we get to do that again. But if you're not personally ready for that, we are still very, very happy to serve communion to you in your seat.
All you got to do is this. There'll be people roaming around the sanctuary. You'll see them. They'll bring it to you in your seat. But if you want to come to the tables, there'll be people serving you up here. I want to invite the servers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, anybody else who's serving at the tables to take your, your spots. Uh, but uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to continue to use the communion packets, and then we're going to reintroduce the homemade bread the, and the, the wine and juice alternatives. Uh, we're kind of easing back into this, but can't wait to see your faces up close, those of you who are able to come. Uh, this is the Lord's Supper. Before we celebrate it together, let's stand and let's pray together a prayer from St. Francis, his prayer of peace. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy.